It's 10 o'clock in beautiful Tel Aviv, Israel, and this is Taxi TV Live. Yeah. <laughs> How are you guys? Good to see everybody. I see we've got a big turnout from Europe uh, tonight. <laughs> I'm so messed up. Uh, I am actually in Israel right now. Uh, let me get the chat room open. There you guys are. Let me say hello to everybody. We've got Howard Cooper, Jesse J. Peck, Chris Hall, Nancy Colell, Gregory Bowman, Ebert Williams, Dex Williams Music, Glenn Letts, Howard Cooper, Michael Lehman, Rance Faboda, Elise Ashby, Nancy Colell, Neil McTavish. Hey, Neil. Uh, Dave Barnett, Pete Mason, Peter Rahill. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, the gang is all here. Glad to see you guys. Um, so I hope the tech hangs in there for the, for the show. Um, and you guys can see me and hear me, right? Oops, I'm getting uh, messages already, let's see. There's a high-pitched sound coming through, FYI. I have no idea what that is. Maybe it's the tinnitus in my ears <laughs> coming through the microphone. I'm wearing a lapel mic. Um, Anyway, sorry about that. Is the high-pitched sound overbearing or just slightly annoying? Tech is great so far. Okay. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, I am in, actually, I'm in Netanya, Israel, which is, I don't know, 25, 30 miles north of Tel Aviv. But I figured if I said Tel Aviv, you guys would know where that was. Netanya, maybe not so much. Um, I am actually here on what was supposed to be a vacation. I've got two daughters that live in Israel and it's turning into a business trip. Um, and I'm also sitting on the squeakiest stool ever. Uh, the verbiness, check this out, Peter Rahill, the condo that we're renting from some family friends is a perfect live chamber. Listen carefully, kids. got like a one and a half second decay right where you want it. Anyway, uh, no more annoying than usual. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's what, look, I even brought a little lapel mic, so knowing that this would be a reflective environment. Um, plate decay. I know, it's, I mean, seriously. I, when my wife and I watch TV at night in the living room, we have to put on um, subtitles or whatever you call those things so that we can actually understand what the actors are saying in the show. Um, but yes, uh, we're very happy to be here. Um, my wife lived here many years ago, and I've been here, I think this is my ninth trip over here, over the last 30 years, and uh, we have two daughters that live over here, and uh, because of uh, corona, we haven't been able to see much of them, so there you go. No, my mic's not wireless, it's wired. Um, so we're doing live Q&A tonight, and uh, Liz sent me some questions, thank you Liz, that you guys submitted, so let me get to that. Um, let's see, where did it go? I know it's on my phone. There it is. And how about, do you believe I actually have the taxi theme?
Anyway, um, so there you go. I think that that's pretty hysterical. Uh, obviously, I couldn't bring the roadcaster with me. Um, let's see, questions, here we go. Okay, so I'm gonna jump right in. I'm gonna start with the questions that you guys sent. And if I can get through those, and there are quite a few of them, then I've written down some other questions that I took from the chat room um, before the show went live. I gotta say, it's really weird being in this different environment. <laughs> and if you could see the studio set up, you would crack up. I brought two little ring lights. One's about the size of a bagel. I'm not kidding, that's on this side. And then another one that's about the size of a salad plate on this side. Excuse me, then uh, a lot of LED lighting built in the ceiling here, and I've got a desk lamp splashed on those two paintings in the background. And Sadly, I can't show you because it's dark here. It's 10 o'clock at night, but uh, we're very lucky that our family friends rented this, this condo because we're right across the street from some sand dunes that lead to a cliff in the ocean. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea actually is, I don't know, half a block from us. So we've got a great view of sand dunes and ocean and all is good. And we've seen both daughters already. Um, I've got a taxi related meeting in Jerusalem on Thursday. Uh, I've got a music library I'm gonna visit with uh, that does business with us and try and pick up one more music library from Israel while I'm here. And then I can write off my plane ticket. <laughs> anyway, let's jump right into the questions. Um, okay, this one, first one is from Kerry Cox. When a, listing, when a listing for country songs, for example, is willing to listen, so in other words, when a listing company is willing to listen to stripped down demos, is it better to go for a full demo that might not be up to the extremely high standards for country demos today, or is it better to go with just a vocal and a guitar, or, could you, or would you submit both? I wouldn't submit both, Carrie. Um, and hi, Carrie, how are you? I hope you're watching live. Um, honestly, Piano vocal demo or guitar vocal demo is probably better than a half-baked semi-full demo because uh, you're absolutely right. The, the quality of the demos that come out of Nashville demo studios are, are remarkably good, um, really good. I mean, they're essentially records. They have all these A-list players playing on them, um, great engineers and producers working on them. Um, It'd be really hard to match that at home, quite honestly, mostly because of the players in Nashville. Uh, but I, I just played about two weeks ago at the office. Um, I played a piano vocal demo for a song that got cut that was a hit song. I can never remember uh, the name of the song or the band. Doesn't matter. Um, all I can tell you is it's nothing more than a piano and a voice, not even a harmony part, not even a second piano part. And I think it's better than, than the master that you know, this giant act created and released and had a single with. Might have even been a number one. Um, so it proves the point that a great vocal on a great song sells it. That's what it is. It's the, on this thing, the piano sound wasn't great. It was okay. Um, the piano playing was simple enough, but heartfelt, not flourishy, but the vocal just made every single syllable of that lyric really count, and that's what sold it. So that would be my advice. Go simple, go strong. Next question. 
This one's from Michael Bruce Miller. Um, when a member uploads music, what are you wanting in the tell us more about the genre field? Um, I gotta be honest with you. I'm the CEO of the company. I knew we had a genre field. I didn't know that we had to tell us more about the genre. Um, and honestly, I would call uh, member services about that. They can probably give you a better explanation than I. I know that when you guys fill out the genre, that the reason we ask you to do that is for us to search stuff internally. Um, if a client reaches out to us and says, I need something in three hours, and we don't have time to run a listing, screen the music, and then get the results back to the listing party, um, we might search the database for country songs. So if you've got a song that's country, it may show up on that list. Being more, even more transparent, really what typically happens is that the A&R staff will look at the last three or four country listings that seem like they're close to what this listing party is asking for in three hours. They'll look at the stuff that got forwarded, they'll pick stuff from the forwards, then reach out to the members and say, hey, we've got an urgent emergency. Um, your song fits the bill, we'd like to pitch it, we just wanna make sure that you're okay with that, number one, and number two, that you haven't signed a deal with somebody else. So that's, uh, that's the way it goes. But if we had to search, like, I don't know, for maybe heavy metal or something that we don't get listings for all that frequently, we could go in the database and search heavy metal. So it's not like your, your take or your opinion or your absolute certainty on what that genre is, is information that goes to the client. Because especially in the case of music libraries, they're gonna tag it with whatever genre they want it listed under anyway. So it's really more for our own internal use. Um, so I hope that answered your question well. This one's from Ewart Williams. Um, what's the rule on payout to a financier? Um, a co-writer usually gets 50% of your share, but what share of the small pie should be cut out for the executive producer? Honestly, Ewart, anything I answer to that would just be a wild guess because there's so much more to know. It's like, um, has that person, did they buy you some gear nine months ago? Or did they put you on a $500 a month stipend? It depends how much money they've put in and what kind of deal you've struck with them. Um, it sounds like you actually want to strike a deal with somebody or maybe you've already got a financier and you haven't done a deal with them. Um, I, to give it some context, I guess, um, you know, a manager typically gets 15 or 20%, um, and the manager puts in sweat equity, some managers, but rarely, uh, but you know, some managers, um, usually very high level managers working with very big acts may finance some development for the act. Um, but let's leave that off the table because it doesn't happen all that often and it rarely happens for like indie artists like you guys. But typically managers get 15 or 20%. So it depends how much the financier put in there. Um, and how long do, does the financier get a piece of the action? Is it just on 
one song is on, on everything you do for some period of time. Honestly, you would be better off speaking to a music attorney about that because I can't remember the last time somebody asked me that question. It's pretty rare. So I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, but that's the best one I've got. Um, this one is from Kyle Sutton. Is it, if it's safe to do so, should we expect an in-person road rally in November? Hell yeah, um, we would love to do an in-person road rally in November. Um, I've got to say, I felt perfectly comfortable. Uh, I was on two different flights, one from LAX to Newark, was on the ground in Newark for about an hour and a half and then got on another plane both full flights, by the way, every single seat was filled. Um, and the next flight was 10 hours and change, I believe. Um, I've been vaccinated, I've been tested and have a healthy dose of antibodies in me. Everybody on the plane was being really good about wearing masks. Um, I feel very comfortable here in Israel, like some ridiculous, like 80% of the population has been vaccinated already. Um, their numbers are way down here. My wife and I were at a mall about two or three hours ago. Um, you're supposed to wear a mask indoors here, but everything is open, bars, restaurants. Um, you actually get a thing that's like a, a, a green card, if you will, on your phone. So if you're going into a, a restaurant to dine in, they check your phone to see if you have um, been tested for antibodies, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, the thing that I've noticed both in Los Angeles and here is, is the fear is gone from people's eyes. People don't look scared to death. Although they don't mandate masks outside here and they were for a long time, um, but I still see people outside like jogging in a mask, <clears throat> jogging by the ocean wearing a mask. Nobody's within hundreds of yards of them <laughs> and they've got the ocean breeze hitting them and they're wearing a mask. So all that to say, I personally feel comfortable but I don't want anybody else to feel uncomfortable. I don't want um, any lawsuits. I don't want to break, first and foremost, I don't want anybody to get sick. Um, I don't want to break any rules, break any laws, all that kind of stuff. So all that said, I just spoke to the hotel right before I left for Israel. And they said, when you get back, can we talk about the 2022 contract? And that was in the form of an email. And I said, sure, I've already long ago signed the contract for 2021, which would be the road rally this coming November. Um, and I remember after I shut the lid on my laptop and packed up my backpack to go home that night in the car, I was thinking, I wonder if they didn't bring up 2021 because the state still mandates that large gatherings can't happen and they expect that it won't, I don't know. So I shot back another email to the head of sales at the hotel and said, can we talk about 2021 when I get back? And she said, absolutely. So I should have an answer, um, I would say by, I don't know, uh, last week in May. Because um, I've got to deal with sponsors. I mean, even if the state of California and the hotel both gave us the thumbs up and the majority of members said, we want to come, but none of that happened until like 60 days before the road rally or 30 days before the road rally. I still couldn't do the road rally. I need a good five or six months of run-up time to take care of sponsors. You know, I can't have sponsors sign on for a virtual road rally and say, oh, by the way, it's not virtual anymore. We're gonna do it at the hotel because they've got a 
pay for rooms for their staff that comes out to man the, uh, the tables at the convention. Um, they've got to ship gear out, uh, just all kinds of stuff. And as I've mentioned before in previous episodes of Taxi TV, um, the one thing I don't want to see happen is them limit the number of people in the ballroom because we've got a, a ballroom that holds a thousand people. And how would I make the decision if we could only have 500 people be in the ballroom who picks those 500 people? Even if we do it by a lottery, so it's pure chance, that still means that 500 other people that have flown in from all over the US and all over the world, some of them aren't gonna be able to see some of the stuff they wanna see. So it, it's a 50-50, I'm being really honest with you. Right now, I believe it's a 50-50. If, if the state of California and the hotel both say, you know, on June 1st, we're cool. Enough people have been vaccinated. As long as you guys wear masks, we don't care if you've got a thousand people in the ballroom. I mean, the mall we were at today was a huge mall and it was absolutely, you know, it was as filled with people as you would see a mall, you know, like the day after Black Friday. <laughs> Maybe not as filled as Black Friday, but the day after. So there's hope. Um, I don't know if the U.S. is going to progress as quickly as Israel is. I know that there are some countries right now, India is having another major problem. I think there's a couple of states in the U.S. that are seeing a spike right now. So I don't know. Anyway, you know as much as I know right now. There's literally nothing more that I could tell you. So I hope that answer keeps you on pins and needles like it's been keeping me. Uh, this one's from Elise Ashby. Two questions. Number one, um, always taking the time to listen very closely to all examples, analyzing tempos, feel, instrumentation, builds, drops, edit points, etc., etc. Yay, good job on that. Um, this stool is driving me nuts, so squeaky. Um, uh, before starting the creative process, I wonder how much weight is coming from the listener's arbitrary opinion. Uh, having received the returns, I have reviewed everything and some of the comments don't tie up. For example, uh, for a dramatic orchestral tension listing, tempo is not within the requested range. I always match the tempo to the examples. Um, for meditative listing, song, instruments, sounds, or samples sound dated or of lower quality. Um, I use the professional East-West library, hence this doesn't make sense. That one I can definitely address. Um, okay, let's take, this is one A and B and then two, so okay. Uh, first of all, this, there is no arbitrary opinion from the screeners. Um, they don't listen to music like we listen as other musicians or as consumers or as fans. They, are, they read the listing. We tell them to read the listing a couple times if that's necessary. We, a lot of times they reread the listing as they're listening just to keep refreshing what the goal is, what the target is for that listing in their minds as they're listening to your music. So their job is threefold. Um, number one, is the overall quality good enough that we could slam it on the desk of whomever the person is running the listing? And when I say slam it on the desk, course I mean that figuratively. Um, number two, is it on target for the genre? Um, 
So those two things obviously are very critical. And the third thing they're listening for is, all right, if it's not working, what about it doesn't work? So that they can give you some cogent feedback. So they're not listening, it's not a matter of taste. I know that people wanna believe it's a matter of taste, but here's the important thing to remember. All the people who have been successful with Taxi, and there have been thousands of them over 29 years, the same screeners ostensibly are listening to their stuff that are listening to your stuff. So it worked, those same screeners, and I mean that in aggregate, um, it may not be the exact same screener every time, but you know what I'm saying. It's not like we've got some that are good and some that are bad. We're really good about pruning anybody who doesn't meet our standards after we test them before they ever get the job. And then we watch them like a hawk when they do get the job. And if they're not meeting our standards for picking the right music and giving you the right feedback, we bounce them, they're gone. It's that simple. So we don't hire people because like he's got really cool taste. It's just not what we do. So as far as, uh, where's the question? Here it is, okay. Um, listeners arbitrary opinion. It's a professionally, professional opinion that is given with purpose. Um, okay, so now let me address those specific things. For a dramatic orchestral tension, a tempo is not within the requested range. I always match tempo to the examples. You should write head screener at taxi.com and show them the specific example. It's that simple. I can't answer it because I'm not sitting here listening it and I believe you. I certainly wouldn't think you would make that up. And if a screener is wrong about that, we need to know about it and the head screener is the person to contact. Um, going to letter B for meditative listing, song instrument sounds or sample sounds dated or lower quality. I use the professional East-West library, hence this doesn't make sense. I've seen hundreds of cases probably over the last 29 years where people are using very professional library samples, but they may not, let me flip this, flip the switch on this. I've heard people use relatively crappy samples and make them sound great because they're so good at using their libraries. Um, as far as articulations, all that stuff goes, they've just nailed it because they just use it over and over until they master it. I've heard plenty of other people that have had $1,000 libraries and I listen to it and go, it doesn't sound good. Um, maybe a little more so with horns than with strings, but definitely we've heard this over and over and over again with strings as well. So if you haven't mastered, and I mean truly mastered all the articulations and stuff, you could have a thousand dollar library and it just doesn't sound great. It sounds okay, may even sound good, but it doesn't sound that convincing. So maybe that's the issue, but you could certainly feel free to talk to the head screener about that one as well. Um, okay, and the last part of this is please explain developmental arc. I take it to mean the builds both instrumentally and volume-wise. Um, the builds would certainly be part of it. Um, developmental arc is, and it varies, what the arc is varies with the type of music it is. Obviously on, you know, a meditative piece, the developmental arc is going to be very different than a dance pop piece or a blues piece. 
overall, I, I would think that most people on the film and TV side of the industry that deal with music um, think of a developmental arc as does it feel like it's going somewhere? Um, obviously, on something that's like uh, you know a tension drone, that really doesn't have much of an arc and doesn't generally feel like it's going somewhere, especially when it's just like a simple pad, you know, that that's almost atonal and doesn't have any rhythm in it. That that's an example of something that doesn't have an arc. But even you know, like an acoustic swampy acoustic guitar with a dobro overdub or an orchestral thing, um, or, you know, dancey, poppy stuff, it should have an arc where it feels like it's staying alive. And it's, this is the whole, the art of mastering instrumental cues for film and TV, is making something repetitive feel like it's not. <laughs> Am I making sense there? making something that's repetitive because they want you to stay on a central theme because the editors need that to cut it up. They don't use the whole piece, but they want that arc in there so that they can go, ooh, I like what it does in the middle, or I like that build at the end, or I like how it's kind of gentle in the beginning or sparse in the beginning. So they kind of pick and choose which sections of the cue that they want to use according to what's going on in the scene. So a developmental arc means that if you played it from top to bottom and you weren't cutting it up yet, would you feel like it started out on this central theme, then moved, which would be adding extra instrumentation, maybe increasing the dynamics, um, and that you, know, you build it, build it, build it, drop it down for four bars or eight bars, build it, build it, build it, and take it out. Um, I've long been telling people, you know, start out with no intro or a short intro. Uh, two years ago at the Road Rally, we had a great video editor and she said, you know what I personally love is I love a cue that starts out with like a drum fill or just a couple of notes. Like it could be like a B3 gliss, you know, somebody glissing up on a B3, boom, right into it. That's an intro because they want something that catches their attention and gets to the red meat, the heart of the matter, very quickly, but they also need room for it to grow, grow, grow. I guess in your world, grow, grow, grow. <laughs> the squeak is killing me. Uh, and then drop down, you know, create like a B section. It's kind of like a bridge in a normal song, and then take it back to that A section, grow it, grow it, and take it home. So I hope that answers your question as to what a developmental arc is. It's not exactly the same thing every time, but the goal of the developmental arc is to make something that is very repetitive, thematically and musically repetitive, sound like it's not. All right, moving on. Uh, this one's from Owen Gretsch. Um, does it make sense to open an account with an American-based PRO even though I live in Europe? This is based on my assumption that most taxi requests come from American libraries, or am I completely wrong? Owen, you're a little wrong, <laughs> just a little. Um, we have libraries that we work with all over the world. If I had to guesstimate the number of libraries, the percentage of library listings that you see, um, I would say 70 or 80% probably do come from the US. 
20 or 30 percent come from outside of the U.S. Um, and obviously, uh, like if your work, if you are in Germany, let's say, um, and you're working with GEMA, uh, well, GEMA has relationships with ASCAP and BMI in the States. So you don't need to be, and I could be wrong about this, I'm not a music attorney, I'm not I'm somewhat of an expert on publishing, but not a full-fledged expert, let's say. I'm about an 85% expert on publishing. Um, eventually, the money will get to you. It will go from ASCAP or BMI to GEMA, or from GEMA to ASCAP or BMI or CSAC, whichever way the money is flowing, depending on you know, where the piece of music aired. Um, what it does is, is it easily adds three months, probably six months, maybe even nine months or a year to the timeline from when the money, uh, when the thing, piece airs to when you're going to get the money. Um, I know that there are taxi members outside of the U.S. that have also opened up ASCAP and BMI accounts. Um, oh, people are talking about the the high pitch noise again, I'm sorry, what can I say? It's uh, fluorescent lights, maybe. Didn't even think about that. No, I think they're LEDs, could be wrong. Anyway, I've got a little lapel mic on. It's probably like an unshielded cable or something. Um, so there you go, I hope that answers the question for you is, you know what, you should go into the Taxi Forum at forums.taxi.com um, and there's a section called BizTalk, I believe, and ask your fellow members who are outside of the U.S. what they do and what they've found that works and what doesn't work. I think the information I gave you is correct, but they can, can confirm for you what works best. Okay, um, moving on. This one's from Graham Meisen. Um, I have a question about my music, which is currently distributed by CD Baby. CD Baby states that they are not a traditional publisher, but are more an administrator of my music in terms of collection of royalties. Uh, a listing I'm interested in states, since this is an exclusive deal, please be sure the material you submit for this pitch is not already signed with other libraries or catalogs. My question is, in the, in the event I should win this pitch, must I ensure that my CD, CD Baby distribution has been seized completely? I'm not sure if my pro distribution facility with CD Baby means they're also classed as a library or a catalog. I hope this makes sense. I've also queried out this scenario, queried this scenario with CD Baby, but unfortunately the initial response was not clear. Okay, that's a great question. It's kind of a sore subject with me. It's something I talk about quite frequently and I'm glad you asked it because I think we have a, an audience of people because of the different time slot watching that um, might not normally hear it, hear my answer. So the answer is that when you sign with CD Baby or TuneCore or any of those people, there are a couple levels of service. If they just are distributing your music to places like Apple Music or Spotify or Pandora, for instance, um, they're not acting in that capacity. They're only acting as the admin, or, I'm sorry, I'm jet lagged and stupid. What can I say? Plus it's bedtime for me. <laughs> um, they're acting as your distributor. It's when you sign up for CD Baby Pro that they become your publishing admin. 
What does an admin do? An admin finds the money and makes sure that you get paid the money and they take a piece for doing that for you. So what does a publisher do? Pretty much the half of what a publisher does. They also do the same thing. So the answer is even if you're doing um, a non-exclusive deal with an admin company like CD Baby and you're signing with a non-exclusive library, sometimes there's still problems with that, but technically I believe that that's kosher. But if, it, if you are pitching to an exclusive company and you've got anybody else who you've signed any sort of deal that says, yeah, sure, go ahead, collect money from me, big no-no. The library that you're pitching to, if they should accept you and you do that deal, um, it's, and you say to them, oh, by the way, I've got a, a CD Baby Pro deal, they'll say, sorry, can't do business with you. If they're feeling extremely generous in that moment, which they don't have to be, they may be, but they probably won't be, they could potentially say, you know what, um, take a week and get that deal eradicated. And I need something in writing that proves that you are no longer signed to that CD Baby admin deal. So. Yeah, you don't want two people trying to collect the same money. So there you go, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, from Martin Michelson, or Mitchelson, sorry. Uh, I often wonder about listing requests for vintage recordings. The one this week that asked for original vintage hard rock or proto metal songs. Uh, recorded between 67 and 79. They can only use authentic vintage recordings that were recorded between 67 and 79. You must own or control your master and composition. Even the listing in this case says the recording quality is not expected to be on par with today's quality. Other cases seem to expect today's quality. Um, I'm wondering about it. 50 or more year old recordings are made with tape recorder, mono, one microphone. So submitters made the recordings 50 or more years ago. They made their composition in young ages. Um, their own they own the master in composition. Um, the tapes have been survived in basement storage for decades, and a couple of years ago, they were transferred to digital format. Uh, and because this kind of thing, of list this kind of listings come quite often, my questions are, what do these companies really expect um, they know, um, one of these companies, we know them all really well, one in particular, I've known the CEO of the company for probably 20 years or more. Um, they're about as above reproach as any company could be, first of all. I just love everything about that company. And so I know them well and talk to them quite frequently and I know they have literally signed stuff that has come to them on a cassette from like the 1960s. Were cassettes even invented then? Eh, maybe not, maybe the 70s. <laughs> um, they've taken stuff that was on old vinyl in some cases. They've definitely taken stuff that was recorded like on a TX4 track. They know that that stuff is not gonna sound, have the fidelity and sound of today's digital recordings. But believe it or not, that's what they want because that's what gives it the authenticity. 
even things like the console's EQ probably wasn't that good. The microphones may not have been that good, although you can make a case for a lot of great microphones from that era. Um, it's part and parcel to the overall sound quality and vibe, that mysterious thing called vibe that you hear in recordings. And so that's what they want is the vibe. Now, it may be an old recording where the tape hiss, and by the way, they are some of the most expert people at getting rid of things like tape hiss and doing restoration on old recordings. They're really like mind-blowingly good at it. So they'll try to restore it, but they won't take out the authentic recording quality, okay? I hope I'm making sense there. So their goal is not to try and take something that was recorded in 1969 and make it sound like it was recorded in 19, you know, or 2019. That's not what they're trying to do, but they may reduce some distortion if it's the kind that's annoying and not helpful. Um, they will definitely try and reduce tape hiss. Um, they will make it sound as good by restoring it as they can, but still keep it true to that era. So like I said, they have absolutely signed stuff that was done on a TAC 4-track. They have signed stuff where the only existing recording was on a cassette. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Was there more to it? Um, and which kind of submittings do you get generally? All across the board. Literally all across the board. Um, you know, early in the life of Taxi, I was a screener, and there were times I actually screened some of the earliest listings for those guys back in probably the mid-90s. Um, and stuff that, frankly, I thought was relatively abhorrent, they said, no, 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 send it, because I would call them and say, what do I do? This is a really cool song. I think it'd be great for the background of like a diner scene or something. But the recording is just like, eeks. And they said, no, send it. We can fix that. And they ended up signing stuff. So there you go. We get them all across the board. And people love that authentic stuff. Um, what, my wife and I were binging some TV series. I can't remember what it was. But there were a lot of scenes in diners and restaurants. And oh, uh, Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad. Um, and there were times I'd hear music and went, oh, I remember that listing. So, um, you know, uh, they want stuff that sounds appropriate for the place where it's going to be heard because usually it's heard used as background source music in a diner or something like that. Not always. Sometimes it's featured. All right, moving on from Michael Lehman. Um, imagine that you've uploaded a track publicly to your profile page. You then submit the same track to a listing. Should you trash the track from public view uh, or doesn't it matter from Taxi's viewpoint? It doesn't matter from our viewpoint. It's the, if you get an offer to sign that track or that song with a, a library, they may want you to take it down um, or at least remove it from being public. Um, some libraries are like, eh, it's cool. Other libraries are like, nope, we control it. We don't want it anywhere but places that we put it. Okay. Sounds from Bernhard Bossard. I don't know the percentage of taxi members from Europe or elsewhere, yet why not 
do just one quarantini happy hour per week, a couple hours earlier in the European time frame. This would be a beautiful direct window for us abroad. Taxi is international. Um, it's not a bad idea. Um, I think that all the people who attend the other ones would be really pissed off at me if I chucked one of those in favor, but I, it's really been difficult for me. I've got to say, I love the audience. The, it's not even an audience to me. It's like a, a family that show up for the quarantinis. It's only 60 people on average show up for those things. And I keep saying to myself, why do I do this? Um, they've heard the same stories, the same industry advice, the same everything over and over and over. But yet somehow there's always something new to be learned. Somehow um, it bonds us all. Somehow it inspires me to work harder for our members, gives me ideas on new things to do for our members. So I keep doing them. Um, but you know what, um, Liz, if you would make a note, don't email it to me now, just give it to me, uh, put it on my desk or something for when I get back. But I'll look into that, I'll consider it because believe me, I feel bad. I mean, I'm somewhat heartened by the fact that you guys can at least watch the, uh, you know, the archive version on, um, on YouTube, but it does, having it be earlier one day a week would make it easier for you guys to participate like this and ask questions. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm not gonna be doing them from, from Israel at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and by the way, gonna let everybody know who are regular watchers of the quarantinis, I can't do any quarantinis this week because as it turns out, I've got meetings on Tuesdays and Tuesday and Thursday of this week and both of those, I won't be able to get back here for sure by nine o'clock to set up for a 10 o'clock broadcast. So no quarantinis this week, guys. Hopefully the next week I will be out of business mode and in full vacation mode and be able to get back. I will be doing a taxi TV on Monday of next week uh, at this exact same time, starting at noon in Los Angeles and 10 o'clock in Tel Aviv. Um, this one's from Ron Svoboda. Since the virtual road rally last year, I've noticed how many young people are involved in taxi. I'm talking about the members, the screeners, and even the head screener. Uh, since I'm 68, am I barking up the wrong tree trying to fit in? No, because I'm not that far behind you. <laughs> uh, I've been a member since August of 2019 and realized like any company, it really helps to know someone to break the ice. Um, you know, at Taxi, it's not about who you know. Uh, it really isn't. And quite frankly, Ron, you'll be very heartened to know that we've had members, um, no shortage of members, by the way, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, who've done quite well with Taxi um, and have networked with members that are in their 30s, 40s, maybe even some in their 20s at the road rallies. Uh, and, and just to put your mind even more at ease, if you look, at, go to the road rally page, here you go, go to the road rally page, taxi.com slash rally, and look at the photograph of the ballroom that's up there and look at the faces of the people in the audience. Um, we've always felt that we had a problem that we didn't have enough young people because the industry in some cases does, you know, especially on the record side of the industry, the pop side of the industry, they want people who are young on the record side because they want to sign young people so that they can have long careers and the buyers of the music are young so they want people in their demographic. 
However, if you're a songwriter, you could be 85 years old. If you can write what young kids want to listen to, record companies wouldn't care how old you are. On the film and TV side of things, nobody gives a damn. <laughs> they just don't care. And it's not like, oh, look at that old 68-year-old dude standing over there. Let's ignore him because he's old. Um, it's just not the case. You will find more old people in taxi by percentage than you will young people. So I hope that gives you comfort, Ron. Um, let's see. Watched your interview with Angela, and it seemed to me that you, Michael, were answering most of the questions that members submitted. Lately, I've been watching Monday's Taxi TV shows after they air and use the forum occasionally. P.S. Be honest. I don't really understand what you're asking, but if I am understanding it, um, I tended to answer the questions about the businessy side of Taxi and let her answer. I mean, she's the head screener. She's not the CEO or the president. Of, of taxi. So there are a lot of things that I take care of and that I know about and that I deal with that she doesn't. Um, but when it comes to stuff that's related to the screeners, I would always defer to the head screener. Um, I may chime in because I've been at taxi for 29 years, but when it comes to musical choices, how the screeners work, how they listen, um, are they giving effective feedback, how they make their decisions, all that stuff. She became the head screener because she was one of the very best that was ever our, under our roof. Um, as a matter of fact, I want to let you guys know that she is no longer the head screener because she recently got a publishing deal um, and she can't devote the time to being the head screener anymore. So she resigned her post as head screener but is, has gone back to being a part-time screener again at Taxi. And we brought on a new head screener whose name is Annie. Um, and Annie was one of the fastest rising star screeners that we'd ever seen. Has her head screwed on really, really straight. And I remember when we brought her on as a screener, I believe it was last summer, sometime around there. You know, it was a while ago. I said to Tom, who's our head of A&R, keep an eye on her because I have a feeling that someday Angela is going to succeed at getting a publishing deal. Um, and, you know, she'll be writing hit songs for records someday and not the too distant future, I believe. And I told Tom, I said, keep an eye on Annie because I believe that she would make a great replacement um, for Angela. And so far, Annie has had the job for like a month or so. And Tom and I just talked about this the other day and he said she's absolutely killing it. So there you go. We went from one great head screener to another great head screener and I'm really, really happy about that. Okay, moving on. And P.S. <laughs> Be honest, I love that. I am always honest. I will never lie. I'm, it's a thing that I've got. Um, I won't even dodge a question, as you can probably tell. Um, from Aaron Michelle. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Um, can you please tell us a story of a time someone extended grace to you, perhaps a mistake, a risk, or an unpopular decision, and it made a difference in your life? 
Um, this could be a music industry specific situation, but it might not be. So whatever Michael, uh, whatever Michael would want to say about the role Grace has played in his career and success as a person. Wow. I wish I'd read the questions in advance. I could give that some deep thought and think. Um, yeah, here's one for you. I'll try and keep this short, but as some of you know, um, I engineered a couple of records for Melanie. Remember, I got a brand new pair of roller skates, Melanie. She was also the opening act at Woodstock, for those of you who are old enough to remember, like I do. Um, so I was very fortunate, very happy to do a record with her um, called Ballroom Streets. Check it out after we finish today's episode. You can Google it or search it on YouTube, Ballroom Streets. Um, it was a double live album with a many piece, I, I want to say like six or seven or eight pieces live in the studio. We had a 25 by 43 studio with 20 foot high ceilings and we brought in an audience of 30 people that sat on the floor every night and we did, did the album top to bottom like every night and then I cut up the two inch master tape looking for like the best four bars from Tuesday night, cutting it to you know the next 16 bars from Wednesday night, blah, blah, blah. So it was a feat of engineering if I can pat myself on the back. Um, I was very proud of it, really, really happy with the outcome. Melanie's husband and Svengali and guru, love of her life, I believe, best friend and manager, and also the executive producer on the album was a gentleman named Peter Shakarik. Peter Shakarik and I did not, we kind of liked each other, but we kind of didn't like each other a lot. He was a pain in my ass. <laughs> I'm going to be really honest about it. And we had a few shouting matches during that record. Um, and uh, it made the record tough to do at times, you know, because I didn't want to upset him because he was Melanie's husband. And he was the guy calling the shots, but there were some shots that everybody in the room knew weren't good decisions from our perspective collectively, but he was the king of the world. So you still have to go with the king of the world, especially when the king of the world's the one writing the checks. Anyway, um, I always regretted that we left on bad terms. Melanie and I didn't, the band members and I to this day, some of them are, are close friends of mine. Um, Anyway, jump ahead like 20, 30 years, probably 30 years or more. Uh, we were doing a road rally at the whatever hotel it was at Hollywood and Highland. It had a very large ballroom that was like a, a city block away from the hotel. You had to go up to the sixth floor, walk across a pool deck and go to this big old ballroom, very separate from the hotel. Their security sucked at the hotel. In the middle of moderating an A&R listening panel, that like everybody on the panel was a VP of, it, of A&R at a major label kind of panel, um, this gentleman walks into the ballroom that didn't look like he belonged at a road rally. Um, he looked to be homeless. And he walked between me and um, the panelists. And he f I, I normally stand at the front of the audience facing the panelists so that I can look at them rather than looking down a table when I ask them the questions. And this guy stood up in front of me and said, ladies and gentlemen, I am homeless and I'm not on my medication. And I thought, this guy's gonna pull out a gun. 
what do I do? And we always have a person in the room, a sta taxi staffer, whose job it is to keep their eyes on me literally every second of every panel. And if I go like that, they know it's hot. If I go like that, they know it's cold. If I go like that, they know call security. Uh, and, and they will. Security wasn't coming. And all of a sudden, this very tall gentleman, like 100 feet away from me in the back of the ballroom, stands up, walks up the center aisle of the ballroom, and I'll be damned if it wasn't Peter Shakarik, the man that, frankly, I couldn't stand while we were making that record. And, and I probably should have made amends with him at the end of the record, and I didn't. Um, actually, he came back for a second record, had the Bee Gees rhythm section with Melanie singing with them, and I was the engineer on it, and he and I did not get along in that record either. I'm surprised they came back and used me a second time, frankly. Uh, anyway, Peter Shakarik got up out of his seat. He happened to be in Los Angeles because um, he was waiting for Melanie to fly back in from like South Korea or something where she was doing a gig and he was meeting her at the airport. I think that at the time they were living in Nashville. So he just happened to be in Los Angeles, just happened to hear about the road rally. I don't even think he knew that I owned Taxi. The, the odds of him sitting in that ballroom and he came up there and he was as tall as this homeless gentleman, and he walked up and stood between this guy and I, and he put his arms around him and said, brother, we need to let my friend Michael do his job here. Come on outside, let's talk. And he took him out of the ballroom and averted what could have been a very disastrous situation. So if that wasn't a moment of grace, I don't know what was. So yeah, I, I called Melanie not long after that, said, I need you to know that your husband is one of the kindest, most graceful people I can think of because he did this for me. And he and I were at each other's throats on a pretty constant basis. And she said, thank you so much for telling me that. So there you go, Aaron. Thank you for asking that question because I love telling that story. Um, let's see, second question from her. Sometimes people get down about changes in the music industry, I think, because they fear they will be left behind. So what change gives you the most hope or excites you the most for the future of our industry? That's a great question. I can give you a really short answer to that. The tools that you guys have to put down on tape what's in your head and in your heart today are amazing tools. I have, I don't know, maybe tens of thousands of hours sitting behind recording consoles. Um, I'm a professional engineer by trade. Professional, some, some would say a professional producer, I, others may not. Um, and I've worked in some very expensive, like world-class rooms, a lot. And I've got to say, since, I mean, I've always felt this way, but now I've absolutely confirmed it. I got logic, I think last September, October. I still haven't had a chance to really sit down and use it. So far, I've just done some mixing with it um, and downloaded some plugins and use those and, and the quality of the gear that you guys have at your disposal anybody can make a record now anybody can make a world-class recording if you're willing to invest the time in your songwriting craft and invest the time in your engineering and production craft and I've got to tell you Somebody said to me very, very early in my engineering career, it just looks intimidating. Really, all it is is like your stereo. It's got a volume knob, in this case, faders up is loud, er, 
um, pan pot, pan it to the left, pan it to the right. It's got an equalizer, which is bass, treble, and mid-range on your stereo at home, and that's basically all equalizers on consoles do. Um, and it's got reverb and delays, you know? I mean, and every channel is the same. So it's really up to you to do the homework and analyze, okay, I like that sound, I like that technique. How did they get it? How did they get it? Google it, search it on YouTube, all the answers are there. I'm absolutely 100% convinced that nobody of anybody with anybody that can use like Microsoft Word or Excel, you've got no excuse not to be using Logic or any of the other great uh, workstations that are out there. Um, there's a lot of stuff you'll never need on them, but the basics are really pretty easy to learn. So that to me has been the best change that gives hope because now people that couldn't afford to pay 100, 200, $300 an hour and go to 24 track professional studios like the ones that I used to work in, anybody can make a record. Anybody that's got the music in their heart now can put it down. Uh, okay, moving on. Um, this one is from Greg Lynch. When a listing indicates it's strongly suggested that a writer had previous experience working with a music library, or if not, they politely ask that you do not, do not, do not sorry, jet lag, submit to this request, does that basically mean I shouldn't give it a try? The reason they say that is Taxi has gotten so good at finding, we've gotten so many great members and we've gotten so good at identifying great material and we forward a lot of stuff to these companies. And then they reach out to the writer and say, or the composer or whomever, and say, I'd like to sign this. And that person says, oh, you're, a, uh, you're an exclusive library. I don't want to work with you. When the listing said at least twice in the listing, it's an exclusive company. May have even said it in bold or in all caps. I mean, pretty hard to miss it and yet this person submitted music to an exclusive listing and then when they get a call or an email from the company's owner saying, nope, I don't want, want to do a deal with an exclusive company, it makes that member look bad, uh, it makes Taxi look bad, it makes our membership as a whole look bad. We're at the intersection of professional entities in the industry looking for music from people who are not yet professional in many cases, professional meaning They've had the experience. Um, so that's why they've asked us to start putting that in some listings because the companies have gotten fairly pissed off and fed up with people. Um, here's another one. It's like, um, I don't want to sign a deal where I give up half of the pub or 100% of publisher share and half of my total publishing. That's the industry norm. People don't know, many people don't know the music library industry or the film and TV music industry and they don't understand that that's totally acceptable, totally typical and you know they reach out to a music attorney that doesn't even know this side of the industry and say, what's up? And, and that inexperienced person, music attorney says, I would never sign a deal where you give up 100% of the publisher's share. Well, yeah, if you're trying to write hit records um, that, that's a different kind of publishing. It's just a different norm 
in, in that part of the world. So they want people that know that the deals are 50-50. They want people that know the difference between exclusive and non-exclusive. They want people that understand that when the library reaches out to you two months after they signed the first piece of music through a taxi listing uh, with you, uh, and then they reach out to you directly a month or two later and say, hey, I've got another opportunity coming in. It's something that's right up your alley. Can you get me the stuff you know, by Thursday evening at six o'clock my time? And you say, yeah, and then you don't. Those are all unprofessional things that come from a lack of experience. That's what they're trying to avoid. So that's why they say it. I hate to tell anybody not to take a shot at those listings because they're usually from real, they're all really good companies, frankly. Um, just know that if you haven't worked with a library before and you don't know what a typical deal is like and you choose to submit to a listing like that, be prepared to not be a weenie when it comes to that contract. They're generally non-negotiable because they can't have 2,000 different writers in a catalog and everybody's got a contract that's slightly different. So they're cookie cutter contracts, but they've been refined over time. And many hundreds, if not thousands of people have signed them before you. Um, if we get any sort of even a little whimper that a library is doing anything inappropriate, it's happened I think two or maybe three times over 29 years where a library's deal was X, when we start working with them in a year or two or three later, they change the deal a little bit, they change the percentage or some aspect of the deal that was fairly significant. They didn't tell us about it, we're still running listings telling our members, great company, kosher deal, and then we get a call from a couple of members saying, not so fast, Lasco. We call that company and say, sorry, we can't work with you anymore. So, you know, we're doing our due diligence, but we can't know when they change their deal. Are they gonna pick up the phone and call us? Oh, by the way, we've changed our deal. No, they're forgetful, they don't. So all that to say, just be professional. Don't, don't show your lack of experience, okay? Um, yeah, you, um, Greg goes on to say, I've worked with music publishers and publishing contracts, most of them on an exclusive basis. However, I've never worked with a music library. Well, just know that basically the thing that freaks people out is it's a 50-50 deal. If you make a buck, they make a buck. Um, so there you go. From Gordon Snow, I write songs potentially for any singer to take and use. Um, the audios I provide are not broadcast quality, but open for collaboration. How can I get my music out there? Um, Gordon, I don't mean this to sound cruel. I don't mean to sound like an a-hole here. But when somebody says, I write songs potentially for any singer to take and use, if you say that to somebody in the industry, they will discount you and say, this person's not very professional. Um, the industry works on a system of targeting. It's kind of like casting the right actor for a role in a TV show. Um, you may need somebody that plays the role of a snarky, quick-witted attorney um, and get your fellow casting director or producer of the show wants to cast um, 
this tall, gorgeous blonde because he's got a crush on her. That's bad casting. You want somebody who, you know, maybe male or female, doesn't matter, but you want somebody that is getting cast because they can speak articulately very quickly. They can be snarky. They, they display that attitude. Well, the same thing is true of casting songs. So to say that I write songs for potentially any singer, no, you've got to figure out who your songs are best suited for, and those would be your best pitchers, uh, pitches. The audios I provide are not broadcast quality, but open for collaboration. How can I get my music out there? I don't really understand, fully understand that question. Um, if you want to collaborate, I think what you're saying is you don't make very good demos of your material. Um, doesn't have to be broadcast quality. If you're pitching to artists on labels, broadcast quality is for stuff that's going to get broadcast. If you're pitching demos to people on labels, yeah, if you're pitching for Beyonce, I would say probably 90% of the stuff that she gets pitched to her or her people that then bring it to her um, are probably almost master level quality demos. They sound like records, they just need her voice. Um, there are other cases where something is a piano vocal demo and the vocal delivery is so perfect for the kind of song she would normally cut and the subject matter of the song is the kind of thing that she would normally cut that when she hears it, she, I can absolutely hear myself doing that. So the audio quality, the production level doesn't matter all that much. Now if it sounds like if the vocal on that demo is pitchy as all get out, if the vocal isn't delivered with passion or heart or sincerity or authenticity, all those things are negatives. Um, but if you're just looking for collaborators to help you get your stuff whipped into better shape, go to the Taxi Forum, forums with an S dot taxi dot com, look for the collaboration section and post one or two of your things up there. Post a link to your material and say, this is what I do, but I need to collaborate with somebody that's a producer that's looking to collaborate with a writer. Hopefully you can find somebody that's a good fit for you. Um, how can I get my music out there? Um, I suggest that you go to taxi.com. Just saying. <laughs> Couldn't resist the plug. Um, this one's from Eugene Tarnow. What do you do when you can't produce broadcast quality? What are the quickest ways to get there? Um, I think I just answered that in the last question. Go to the collaboration area and say, I'm a, I'm a writer. Um, I'm not a producer. Because we do have members that are better producer, producers than they are writers. I would say at this point, at least half, if not more than half, of the deals that get made through Taxi are because of collaborations. Two heads are truly, generally, better than one, especially when somebody else has a strength that you don't and you have one that they don't. So there you go. Find each other and get married. Um, this one's from Horace Mix. I'm about to submit two songs for the British Invasion Era Taxi listing. And my question is about stereo versus mono. The stereo mixes are usually pretty unbalanced from back in the day with bass and drum stuff panned heavily to one channel, the vocals to the opposite channel. The bright side is that it will add the feeling of listening to something dated, but mono mixes are powerful and the attack of the sound improves notoriously. Um, honestly, go for mono mixes. That's just my personal opinion that's Michael the engineer, Michael the producer talking. 
Um, it's funny, I was just having this conversation with, with somebody days ago, it feels like. Uh, we were talking about the Israeli gears, the cream record. Um, that was the first thing I ever heard stereo, and I remember it blew my mind that like the bass and drums were on that side over there, and the vocal and the guitar were over there. It didn't make any sense to me, frankly. Um, it certainly wasn't like we mix in stereo today. So, um, and you're absolutely right. Nobody would turn their nose up at a mono mix for uh, material from British Invasion era, so I would go for mono mixes. Uh, let me scroll down, I lost my place. This one's from Ryan Inlow. Can you please explain the difference and advantages of dispatch versus taxi, uh, standard listings? I've heard dispatch may be going away, but just received an invite to join. Glad you asked that question. Um, at some point, dispatch is going to go away. Uh, here's the short, hopefully concise, you know what? I gotta grab a drink. Wow, we've only got 22 minutes left. I've got to tell you, their flavored bubbly water over here has so much flavor, it's almost like soda pop. Check that out. You won't see that on a label in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, oh, Dispatch, okay. Dispatch was created around 1999 or 2000, I believe, because we started getting calls from music supervisors and sometimes music libraries that needed stuff very quickly, um, faster than we could do it under normal circumstances. So we had to dedicate an entire, excuse me, uh, an entire staff member, an entire office, a fairly large office, um, a lot of overtime for that staff member and special screeners because they were kind of like the SWAT team of taxi. They were like a company within a company and we had a lot of extra expenses that we didn't have with regular taxi. So we created this thing called Taxi Dispatch where they were like their own company operating within taxi. Um, and the point was that I don't care how you get it done, just do it right. Um, get, find the stuff quickly and get it out these people quickly. As the industry, as film and TV started taking off in later years, probably in the 2006 to 2010 era, um, we started seeing more and more listings from production music libraries, um, more and more film and TV, and the whole film and TV side of the industry was becoming known because prior to that, Taxi was the laughing stock of the industry. People on the record side of the industry would go, oh, Taxi, those guys do a lot of film and TV stuff. <laughs> the joke's on them. Anyway, um, we needed a SWAT team to deal with that and we created Dispatch. Jump ahead many years, the whole industry started needing stuff sooner than what we used to do, which was 30-day listings, listings with 30-day deadlines, listings with 60-day deadlines, listings with 90-day deadlines. Film and TV couldn't handle that stuff. So we just had to reorient the way the company worked and start running our, we started running all of our listings for like 30 days. Well, got to a point where a few years ago, maybe eight years ago, um, 
we made the decision to start running listings when we could for more like three weeks. None of this more than 30 day stuff. Because um, we were finding that people forgot that they ran the listing. Even people on the record label side would go, yeah, you know, I need X, Y, or Z. And then they would forget because it would be six or eight weeks till they got the stuff. They would literally forget that they were, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. So we thought that we could improve that situation. And so we started running a lot, all of our listings uh, on a shorter timetable. We were gonna get rid of dispatch at that point. And what happened was we queried a bunch of members. They're like, no, I get more deals through dispatch with libraries than I'm getting through regular taxi. And they were convinced it was because they had less competition. Well, as those of you who are in the know know, there is no competition in taxi. You're not competing against other members' music. You're competing against a quality bar and a target for the genre or, or what they're asking for in the listing, you know, is, does it sound like the references? Is it in the genre? So that's where the competition is. But these members didn't want us to get rid of dispatch. So we kept it on and they just started asking, we want more instrumental listings. We want more instrumental listings. So now dispatch is almost all library instrumental listings. They do tend to be the listings where we know the libraries are looking for it sooner than later. Sometimes they are urgent. Um, there are times that on rare occasions where we'll even put in a song, like it could be somebody in Nashville is going back in the studio next Wednesday and they're still looking for a hit single. Can you guys blast it out in a hurry? We've been known to put those out through dispatch. However, sorry, this stool is so squeaky. Um, we think at some point, I was gonna do it honestly in 2020, I'm gonna raise the price of taxi. We haven't increased the price since I started the company in 1992, which is 29 years ago. Imagine how much the cost of virtually everything has gone up since 29 years ago. Um, I actually made a chart one day of things like groceries, gasoline, housing, um, the price of an automobile, um, just about everything has gotten more expensive except for consumer electronics. So our overhead has increased dramatically over the years. Um, our profits have been whittled down considerably. Um, Taxi is not the kind of company where, you know, we have shareholders to report to or we're so driven by profit, but we work really hard. Some of us work on our vacations when we're 8,800 miles away from home. and. You know, uh, I don't want to get to the point where the company is a charity or that it puts the company in any jeopardy of staying alive. So we're going to raise the price. I was going to raise it in 2020 and then this little thing called COVID came along. So here's the deal. When the price of taxi does go up, we are going to roll the dispatch listings because we've gotten so good and so efficient on so many levels now. We have the best screeners we've ever had. We've got the best staff we've ever had. We've got the best back end that you guys never see of our online stuff that helps us process all the inbound and outbound music. There's like 16 or 17 steps that the music goes through. Um, we've got it down to a science and that's the only reason through those efficiencies that we've been able to not go out of business at the current price. So just know a price increase is coming sometime in the relatively near future 
but instead of paying $150 a year, which we do prorate, if you decide to join Dispatch for the last 30 days of your membership, it's prorated at whatever that is, like 50 cents a day or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, it's gonna be rolled into everybody's membership. So you may end up paying $100 a year more, but you're getting something that costs $150 that's gonna be rolled into it. So there you go. And you still get two free tickets to the road rally. But yeah, if you do instrumental stuff, and, and we also don't push, believe it or not, most companies you know, try to upsell you on something as soon as you join. We don't. Um, frankly, we discourage people from joining Dispatch until they're well in the saddle with Taxi. We want them to be experienced members. We want them to understand music library contracts and the norms. So all that stuff needs to be um, absorbed by you as a member. Um, you know, just that simple. Um, dispatch, you won't like Dispatch unless you know the drill. So there you go. Um, let me find my place. Uh, um, Thomas Goodlunas, I already answered her question about the CD Baby Distro Kid um, situation with being signed to them in libraries at the same time. Not, not kosher. Um, Jerry, oh, this is a good question. Jerry Teal, not that they have, they've all been great tonight. Please explain how to understand what a STEM is. Are there any examples? Uh, have you Googled STEMs? Um, ask on the Taxi Forum. Again, forums.taxi.com. I'm sure that your fellow members would point you to examples of their music that are STEMs. STEMs are basically um, broken out pieces of your mixes. So let's say you've got a finished mix and you've got 24 tracks of music. You've got bass, drums, a couple of guitars, two synth pads, a grand piano, um, a horn part, a string, you know, horns doubled on two tracks, um, strings, a lead vocal, and background vocals. So first thing you would do would be do a mix minus vocal, um, which would be take out the lead vocal and the background vocals. You might want to do a mix where you just take out the lead vocal and leave the backgrounds in. There may be a situation on a TV show where they want somebody on camera to sing along with your full production. Um, there may be times where your song gets used for a TV commercial and they want to take the vocal out during what's called the donut, where the voiceover comes in in the middle of the commercial. So they need, <clears throat> they need stems, which basically, um, so that they can intercut between the full track with the vocal. They don't want your master tape where they're actually gonna remix it. They want the reverb, they want the relative levels, they want the mastering if there is mastering, but they do want certain things separated out so that they can use them or not use them. And all they have to do is then take those stems and bring the fader up to zero so they're, they're all at equal level. That will put them at the levels that you had them at in the mix. And then they can cut between maybe a new intro, which is just 
a guitar playing and then bring in the drums later. So basically, it gives them the ability to edit and remix your stuff without messing with your overall balance and the sounds you got and the effects that you had on there. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I wish I could demonstrate it for you here, but I'm sure somebody in the forums will be happy to give you a link that shows you what their stems are like. But that's basically all it is. It's, it's almost like submixes to some extent. Um, you know, they may just want like bass and drums. Oftentimes, believe it or not, they'll take hit songs and use them for TV commercials and just use like parts of the rhythm section because the song is so familiar, but they find by leaving the full mix in there, it steps all over the dialogue in the commercial, but yet they want the, the brand equity or the star equity of having a big band in the commercial. Um, watch, oh gosh, one of those all-inclusive resorts commercials that uses the Black Eyed Peas song. Um, that's a great example of how stems, watch that commercial and listen to it and you go, oh, the record didn't sound like that. That's because they're taking stuff in and out because they got stems. So there you go. Um, <laughs> Ken Mesford wants to know, uh, does Michael ever plan on retiring like there's anything better to do than taxi? And if so, what does the future hold for his fan club? I mean members, LOL. Thank you, Ken. Um, I don't want to die in the saddle. Um, I feel I'm 66 years old. I don't feel 66 except when I get up off the couch after watching TV three hours and my back is killing me. Um, I love what I do, obviously. I'm passionate about it. Um, I would hope that someday I'll be able to retire. Um, I'm a little encouraged uh, that something good for me came from COVID. I know something really horrible came for a lot of people, but what came good for me was showing that I could work remotely um, like I'm doing here. And quite frankly, you know, look, we've got two kids that live over here in Israel. My wife used to live in this country. She loves it. There may be a time in the not too distant future where I might start coming over here for a month or two or three at a time. And I've been working. I've been doing my normal work while I'm here, quite frankly. I've been trying to have a vacation, but that hasn't worked out all that well. Um, it never does. Um, but, you know, the fact that I could do taxi TV at night and uh, make our friends in Europe really happy by doing that. So yay to you guys. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't expect retirement anytime soon. Um, I already talked about the road rally in the earlier part of the show. Thank you for that question, Mike Carroll. Uh, John Simmons, if I do, um, if I do cover, John Simmons asks, if I do cover songs uh, and add verses that are original that I've written, will Taxi accept those submissions or does licensing get in the way of a potential placement? Frankly, if you're doing covers and you're writing different verses, the people that are looking for the covers probably won't want it. Um, they generally want the original melody and the original lyrics. Um, frequently, as is the case for film trailers, they want reimagined covers. So you might take a song like the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, and rather than doing a lively, you know, Brit pop um, cover that sounds pretty much like the Stones' original version, 
What if you slowed it down and made it like dream pop? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the unexpected version of a cover of a hit where you go, oh, that's satisfaction, but that's kind of cool. Watch film trailers and TV promos. That, get, that stuff gets used all the time but they won't like it. If it doesn't have the original lyric, it loses the thing that they're looking for. Oftentimes, um, they're looking for the lyric content because it goes with the storyline that they're trying to give you in two and a half minutes in a film trailer. So the chorus of a song in particular, but sometimes the verse actually accomplishes that equally as well. Um, this one's from Anderson Storm, great name. Uh, you should write novels, um, adventure novels for Anderson Storm. Um, can dispatch work for me? I made some craft exercising using dispatch calls, and that was challenging and absolute fun for me, uh, but I have no forwarding at this time, have not booked dispatch yet. Um, wait till you get some forwards. Uh, but I like, I'm really proud of you and really appreciate the fact that you're taking dispatch listings and using those as practice targets, but wait until you get some forwards. I don't want to see you spend your money on something that probably won't pan out for you, but as soon as you get a few forwards, then you've cleared the quality bar and you're hitting the, the targets. So that's the point when, when dispatch might be useful for you. Um, Oh man, you've got a lot of other questions in here. Uh, how much time do I have? I've got five minutes left. Um, what tools can I use to find out the common categories of my music? That's an easy one. Um, go to Spotify, go to SoundCloud, go to Pandora, anywhere you can find charts. If somebody's asking for Dream Pop, um, listen to what dream pop sounds like, but don't listen to just one thing, listen to a bunch of things. So, and ask yourself honestly, and ask a friend or two, does my thing sound like that? A lot like that, genre-wise, texture-wise, mood-wise, that's how instrumentation-wise, those are the things that go into defining a genre. Sometimes lyric-wise, like country lyrics are very different than, um, you know, hard rock lyrics would be, for instance. Um, the, but the lines are getting blurred these days. It's harder today than it's ever been to define a genre. That I will agree with. Not that you brought that up, but I will add that in. Um, do you have any advice on how to handle the anxiety not to be good enough for this business? I've got great advice for you. And I mean this all in my heart. Um, Every single one of our successful members felt exactly like you do right now. Every one of them. Many of these people have become my friends over the years. Every single one of them tells me that they felt like an idiot. They felt like a fool. <laughs> Go watch. Um, if you're a taxi member, you Go look on your taxi homepage, your taxi, like your artist page, your profile page. There's a link to last year's road rally. Watch the interview with Matt Vanderbilt. I think it was the second interview of the entire road rally. It's called, If I Can Do This, Anybody Can. 
Matt Vanderbo, by his own admission, he's become a great friend over the years. He's a goofball. He's a really smart but goofy guy. He is very smart, very likable, really funny and goofy. He absolutely, sorry, got a tickly nose hair going on there. Uh, he absolutely is the first to admit, he admits it in the video, that he turned on um, Pro Tools the first time and he was staring at a blank screen. He didn't know how to, know how to open up a template or a session or anything. Um, and he was actually using his computer keyboard instead of like a piano style keyboard. Uh, and, and he w was, if there was anything that could be done wrong, he found a way to do it wrong. And now he's like in our Hall of Fame members. Um, yeah. Why get stressed? Uh, it, it's not your life. It's not, God forbid, a family member with, you know, cancer or something horrible. Um, it's making music. It's supposed to be fun. And, and believe me, I do know it can be frustrating. I sat behind a console for a lot of years and understand the frustration. But now looking back at that time, I'm frustrated with myself when I, you know, like shut my eyes in my mind's eye and I think back to the old days. Think, why did that seem so crushing? and unbearable, it's so like, why was I at the throat of Melanie's husband, Peter Shakarik? It's making music. Um, sooner or later, anybody who sticks with it will succeed. I absolutely believe that with all my heart. It's the people who get frustrated and anxiety ridden and stick their tail between their legs and say, I guess I'm just not cut out for this, I'm not good enough. Well, we have some members that are making six-figure incomes that are not great composers. They're not amazing. They'll never be John Williams. They'll never be, oh, what's his name, Hans Zimmer. Um, they don't need to be. To earn six figures composing for TV, you don't need to be those guys. It would be cool to be them, but they're overqualified, frankly, for TV anyway. So really what you need to do is just sit down and listen. If you're composing instrumental tracks, sit down and listen, watch a lot of reality TV because they use 75 to 100 instrumental cues per episode. Listen to the cues, not just what's in them instrumentation-wise, but listen to where they're used, what emotion they're conveying. If they're, is it a comedic scene and they're trying to bolster the comedy in there? Is it a sad scene and they're trying to melt hearts? Why was that music chosen? How was that music made so that it melts your heart faster and better? Those are the things that once you understand those, it all becomes easier. And just be patient and don't give up. Um, that's not a rah-rah speech. You know, my father once said to me, the last person off the field always wins the game. That's what kept me. There were nights where I literally cried myself to sleep when I started this company. No money was coming in. My wife and I were living on rice and beans. I was getting eviction notices on the apartment door and I just didn't give up. Frankly, I didn't give up because I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my wife and my kids. I didn't want to fail in front of them. But if you tough it out, if you're not crying yourself to sleep, you're probably not working hard enough, okay? All right, that's it. Um, what do you do about a language barrier? You're talking to a guy that's walking around Israel right now going, anybody speak English? <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? If I lived here year-round, I would find a way to get over the language barrier. Um, Anderson, 
where there's a will, there's always a way. And believe me, we do have a lot of members from foreign countries. Um, anyway, thank you guys. Um, let me, I'm going to spend an extra couple of minutes looking at the chat room because I've been ignoring you guys trying to get through all of those questions. You know what? I'm going to... Uh, if everybody doesn't mind, I'm going to go 10 minutes long because there were some other questions that were asked before this started tonight and I want to answer these questions. So I'm going to burn through them really quickly. Uh, Matthew Hickam, I believe, I scribbled the name. Uh, is there a way that you guys can let me reply to the screeners? Uh, I'm sure we could do it technically, but we don't want the screeners taking their time reading your replies, even if they're like, oh, I love you, thank you. Um, which would be awesome, but we want to keep them focused on the music, not engaged in conversation with you. But on the forum at forums.taxi.com, you can go to a thing called Screener Shoutouts and post a shoutout, whether you love them or hate them. And we actually put all of them into an email and the head screener sends them out to all the screeners because they're all still working remotely because of COVID. So they will see if you say, hey, you know, this is Matthew Hickam and thank you so much for forwarding my song. Mary had a little lamb for that listing and I really appreciated your encouraging comments. That's great. Um, copyrights on covers, how is that dealt with? Um, the library gets the copyright. You own the copyright to the master recording, which you then convey to the music library. They become the owner of the master recording. The copyright to the composition, the song or the instrumental, remains with the person who created it last week or 25 years ago. If you're copy, you know, doing a cover of, a, I don't know, trying to think of a, you know, a Beyonce song, let's say. Um, whoever wrote that song, they and their publishers still own the publishing on it. So you own the master, uh, copyright on the master, you convey that to the library, then the library exploits it, and the library then would have to get permission from whoever the publisher of the composition was. And then ultimately the people who license it for a film or a TV show would license, it's called both sides, they would license the master and the composition. Uh, and sometimes the deals are done with what's called favored nations, which means that um, not that often for music libraries, but it does happen for TV commercials um, more frequently or for uh, movie trailers, where let's say they get 50,000 bucks for um, the master, or for the copyright, for the licensing the copyright of the composition, licensing, it's like renting it, okay? They also would give 50 grand to the owner um, of the uh, copyright on the recording, the master recording. Um, Runner asked, uh, Runar, R-U-N-A-R asked, I've had a lot of forwards, and I'm, this is a, a synopsis of your question. I've had a lot of forwards, no actions yet. Um, what should I do? <sighs> Taxi members have told me this for years. Think of it as seeds planted. Sooner or later, some of those seeds will sprout. Maybe their time just hasn't come yet. Sooner or later, just hang in there. There's a great thing, look at, um, in the taxi newsletter that just came out yesterday or the day before, 
There's a column in there. Uh, it's actually a taxi member's post on the forum that says uh, it's called a long-term perspective. And the gentleman who wrote it, I'm really appreciative that he said this. He was a member for like two or three years. Then he dropped out of taxi and he said, uh, I was doing it to make coffee money, but I eventually couldn't drink that much coffee, but I was only making mid five figures. Well, mid five figures where I come from is like in the $50,000 a year range. So that was pretty good coffee money. Um, and then he came back to taxi recently and he posts at the bottom some things I would do differently. And, he said, and the number one thing I believe on his thing was, um, I wish I hadn't dropped out of taxi. You wanna keep feeding, you wanna keep planting those seeds. Even when you're not hearing about anything sprouting or anything turning into a tree, eventually something or a lot of somethings will, but you gotta keep planting. Okay, one last question. Um, nobody's ever asked this, this is a great question. This is from David, whose last name I didn't write down. Thank you, David, for asking this. Um, did the screeners see comments from past screeners? No, we don't want them spending their time reading what other screeners wrote. And we certainly don't want them to be influenced. We want them in the moment on that listing with that set of standards that they're charged with for that listing. That's where we want them with blinders on, focused on that. So the last thing in the world I want them to do is see what somebody said about the same song nine months ago. Uh-uh, never has happened, never will happen. Okay, one last reminder, and thank you for all of you who are in Europe or in the Middle East and were able to join us for the live show tonight. Been great hanging out with you even though I didn't talk to you in the chat room. Um, maybe next week I'll do another one of these where it's Ask Michael Anything, because it feels like you guys have a lot of questions, a lot of new faces. Maybe we'll do that next week, but I will be doing another Taxi TV same time next week. Um, I will not be doing any quarantinis this week. The tech was fairly hard to get together. Um, and as it turns out, the, the two responsibilities I have this week, other than my family and, and trying to squeeze in some vacationing, both happen to be on quarantini days. So, and I couldn't avoid that. So just know that I will try really hard the following week to do quarantinis on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but we'll probably do it um, at this time again. Because um, for me to do it at four in the afternoon in LA would be two o'clock in the morning in Israel. As much as I love you guys, maybe not that much. Anyway, thank you all for coming. Check this out. Where is it? No, hold on, hold on, don't go away. All right, here we go. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. <laughs> Bye, you guys. And here comes the fade. Whoops, that was the short one. Bye, you guys.